Hello, my name is Kelvin Garvan. Welcome to Food Sector Systems. Food Sector Systems is the podcast for Food Sector Systems LLC, and we are dedicated to ensuring the integrity of food from seeds to scraps. Also, we're committed to creating efficient supply chains so that optimal food, the best food for the consumer, is available, accessible, affordable, and acceptable. Today, I'm really delighted to have Ether Robinson as our guest. Ether Robinson was born in Yazoo City, Mississippi. She was educated at Tougaloo College, and she went on to leave the South, arrived in Los Angeles in 1963, and embarked on a 40-year career as a teacher, teaching students at various subjects in the Los Angeles school system. Thank you for joining me, Etha. Glad you asked. I want to also say that you are the founder of the African American Food Association, but we're going to get to that a little later in this conversation. I want to talk about food, and I want to talk about work. While you were living in the South, you were involved with sharecropping. Tell me some more about that sharecropping experience. Well, sharecropping is actually what it means. You're sharing the crop with someone who actually owns the plantation. What happened was after slavery, and of course slaves having no place to go, needed homes and so forth. So we were uh, often, you know, reluctant to leave and spent time staying on many of the plantations where our ancestors had been slaves, but this was later on uh, in the 50s. My mother and my father were separated, so we went to Missouri in a place called New Magic, Missouri, where we sharecropped there. We lived on the land provided by the plantation owner, lived in the house provided by him as well. And he provided all the raw ingredients and materials that it took to bring in a crop. And of course, all the expenses that we were uh, charged with were taken out of the harvesting of the crop. So we picked chopped cotton and usually the land maybe not wasn't too far from where you live. And so we would start usually about eight, six, seven, eight o'clock and usually early about six or seven in the morning. So that means we would have to get up around four, get dressed and then go to the field, take your lunch with you because you were going to be there till about six or seven that evening. So uh, we stayed there and school was time was arranged around uh, planting, chopping time, and of course uh, picking the cotton. Usually the cotton had to be chopped twice and also had to be picked twice. So, uh, and we had to be in the fields and make certain that the harvest came in on time. And everything, all the necessary ingredients for that was taken care of by the plantation owner. You mentioned in a previous conversation the chopping cotton is associated with slavery and in general field work was not considered gainful employment. However, it taught you patience, responsibility, and humility. Can you explain that a little further? In other words, uh, when, you were, when we were small, of course we didn't enjoy, most children don't enjoy going to work, but we knew that we had to uh, work. It wasn't always optional that my mother didn't ask us if we wanted to go to the field. We had to follow the instructions. 
and we knew that it was a source of our livelihood. And and it's saying in some ways we had fun. We played in the fields, and uh, we knew that on certain Friday we would be able to keep the money, maybe that we had earned some of the money that we had earned that on that particular day to actually go into town, buy comic books, eat maybe, and go to the movie. So it taught us how to be responsible, uh, even how to be on time, because you had to get up at a certain time to get dressed, to get ready to go to the field. And then uh, it was a long time before I really understood all of the things that my mother had to do in order to maintain a household, because for a long time she was a single parent. So there were lots of things that had to be done in order for us to be able to go to school and to have, uh, you know, a comfortable uh, living uh, situation. So I learned long time ago that it, it was uh, that it was necessary to take care of yourself. We had to clean up behind ourselves. So that that's self-sufficiency. There's an old saying, God bless the child who has his own. And my mother always told us that when we were uh, around people or wherever we were, that we had to learn how to uh, clean up behind ourselves, pick up behind yourself. And, and if you didn't do anything, you know, you weren't going to be able to benefit from whatever whatever the rest of the people benefited from by doing the work. So it then eventually I found out that it wasn't anything to be ashamed of. It was actually an experience. And so I think that that's what had to happen. But we were so inclined to associate anything that had to do with slavery as uh, it was like a, uh, a something to be ashamed of because we didn't really understand the truth and that when you pick cotton, there was really not much else. You couldn't move up in it. There was no such thing as promotion. You know, you may have picked more cotton than the next person, but you weren't going to end up being in any higher position. So we didn't look at it as gainful employment. We wanted to go to school. But it, it taught us about hard work and knowing that hard work did not, uh, you know, it, it wasn't harmful to us because my mother, she was, she was, she was strict, but she was, she was uh, a good humanitarian. So we learned how to work and we learned the benefit of cleanliness. We learned the benefit of being responsible as well as being reliable. And so uh, I think that that was, those were things that I still carry with me to this day. You talked about taking your meals out into the field. And I believe Fannie Lou Hamer has a quote that if a family has a hog, they can feed themselves for a year. What kind of things did you eat growing up? Well, when growing up, we we had a garden, of course. Almost all farmers had gardens. You know, there were plants. You had greens, sweet potatoes, uh, peanuts, uh, okra, tomatoes, things like that. But you, the, the hog was go, was going to supply your proteins for the whole year. So the hog may weigh maybe up to 300 pounds. So you got hams, you got pork chops, you got bacon, you got fat back, it was called. You got sausages and you took all the appendages, the feet, the ears, the lips, the head, make hog head cheese. So the, the farmers were very versatile in the things that they made uh, and derived from the pig, it, it showed a lot of creativity uh, in in uh, taking foodstuffs and making it uh, so that you could eat it for the whole year. Because they smoked the hams, had a smokehouse where you would hang the hams up in the smokehouse, and that way the you'd have refrigeration so the 
you salted the meat and smoked it and it provided and stayed safe eating for the rest of the year. Salt back was salted down like part of the pork of the hog's belly and you salted that down and you had fat back when you ran out of the ham. You'd have bacon and of course you'd have the pig feet, the hog head cheese, all those kind of things that uh, the farmers made uh, from the all the various parts of the hog. There was nothing thrown away. And the skin, of course, was cooked in a big black pot and you had cracklings. And even they even took the hoofs off the hog and made hog hoof tea, which was used during the fall months for, you know, in, in a mixture to make teas. Hog feet tea. I've hog never heard of tea. Hog, hog hoof. Hoof. Well, if you know a little about, about food, and I know you're into the world of science, I'm just learning, a, so please. Just, well, we all are, but what happens is gelatin, just regular jello, is made out of the, the fat from a, from a hog. You know how the, when, a, when that fat congeals, it gets real shaky and jiggly. So yeah. they use that, that substance uh, in, the, in making the jello. But yeah, the, the hoofs of the teeth had proteins. All of your fingernails and your hair, uh, they all contain, they're made out, they all contain protein. If you know, if you burn hair or fingernail, they have an odd smell. There's yeah. a unique smell to those kind of, those uh, things that are high in protein. So the, the hooks had proteins in it. So they knew something about boiling that tea to get the protein out of the hoof to, you know, to act as some kind of of medicine uh, that we would that they would make tea out of, and we would drink that tea. Of course, it didn't taste very good, but we drank <laughs> it. So it was <laughs> hog hoof tea, hog head cheese, pigtails, pig feet, pig ears, pig lips. So you name it, and then a the hog could claim it. <laughs> I remember you told me that you were living in Mississippi when Emmett Till was killed. What was it like growing up in the Mississippi where something like that could have occurred? Well, we were fearful in many ways because uh, you, you, and as the old saying is, you knew your place. I was, I guess I was about nine years old, seven or eight, nine years old when Emmett Till was killed. And, you know, you heard, at that time we didn't have television, so we heard everything on the radio. But it wasn't uncommon for black men to be beat or to be hung or to, as they say to be ran out of town that was also part of the great migration uh certain things black people did uh if they if the, if the main stream society didn't approve of it sometimes you had to you know pack up and leave town so it was very frightening it was fearful uh in the sense that we did know that things like that did happen around us but there's a there's an old saying is during those times, black people knew their place. It wasn't necessarily anything that was shameful. It was all about survival. See, if Emmett Till had been socialized, he hadn't been socialized to live in the South. We were socialized to live in the South so that we could survive. It wasn't a matter of, you know, thinking you were better than anybody, but in order to survive, and that's what a lot of the black men did. They said, well, okay, if I stand up and I get killed, who's going to provide for my family? So Emmett, Till right. came from, so Emmett Till came from Chicago. So he, as they say, he was a little bit uppity and he didn't realize the danger he was in when he, I, I don't necessarily say that he did anything that was that 
uh, wrong or volatile because I think uh, some time ago, a few years ago, the lady admitted that she had lied, but he wasn't socialized to live in the South. See, we had to say yes, sir, and no, sir. But when you came uh, up north, you could say yes and no. It just seemed in our head that there was a, a sense of elevation. But we were still in the same situation. We were not necessarily held in high esteem. The esteem really comes from how you feel about yourself. But it was a frightening situation uh, when that happened because we were fearful of white people. But usually if we if we did what we had to do, uh, we were able to move on through it. It was a difficult, but it was scary, especially for young men. Because there's a, you know, there's just something about young men they want to fight back, which is a normal situation. So it was always uh, thought that that the, the black male, of course, was the most feared uh, in the southern state. So uh, even as black women, we had to be concerned about our welfare as well. But it was a it was a, a an experience that kept you at bay. In other words, it kept you uh, alert and aware of what was going on around you, because that was big news even at that time. It was on the radio and all over. Well, it was all over the country and probably all over the world about what had happened to him. Do you, you know, know of any men personally who had been run out of town or beaten or even killed? Well, I knew, yes. Well, I know of some families. I know some families. They had to leave town when they signed up for. That was when we moved back to Mississippi. They had signed to join the NAACP, and uh, they were told by the power structures. You know that first they turn their gas off and then they turn their electricity off and then eventually they told them that they had to leave town so if you don't have any lights and water and you lose your job it's difficult to stay in a place like that so many families i knew very good friend of mine i actually cried when he had to when they had to pack up and move to detroit so many of the families that signed up especially for things like the nacp or was active to a certain degree, not to the same degree as Fannie Lou Hamer. But, you know, she was beaten severely. They were uh, deprived of certain uh, comforts, and so they would have to leave town. But, yes, I went to school with some people who had, whose families had to leave Mississippi because they signed up to join the NACP. How do you think that this information got passed? Were there people who were inside who would tell? Were there people who you know, collaborated with local authorities to let people know who was leaning toward the NAACP? Well, there was a probably a combination of both of them. Because, you know, when you have, when you're formulating an organization or you're establishing one, you're going to be meeting. So the word gets out, you know, that them Negroes, they over there having a meeting. It was okay for us to meet at church. But then when we start having separate and political, you know, at that time, you were talking about the right to vote. And that was one of the measures that the NACP was adamant about. So when they had, you know, when they would hold meetings and uh, uh, talk about what it took to vote and, and things like that, I think primarily it was the fact that they were just aware. They were very aware because it, as strange as it may seem, in the South, black and white folks' life was very intimately involved. We cooked for them. We cleaned for them. We took care of their children. We talked to them. In, in families, you know, one generation after the next generation maybe worked for the same plantation owner. So they kind of knew where we, you know, what we did and they knew the places where we went. And so most of the times they were aware of it because if you're going to 
maybe you have a, a, a newsletter out. You know, we're going to have an NACP meeting or something of that sort. So then the word quickly got around because they didn't want you doing anything that, uh, you know, the mainstream didn't have control of. And there may have been people who, you know, you know, that were on the uh, low key and and folks would ask them, you know, what's what y'all doing over there? You know, they called us the N-word and what they meeting over there and what they're talking about. Because most of the things that we did took place in churches that we didn't have public halls, you know, auditoriums and things like that, where we could conjugate very few places, nightclubs. But for the most part, we met and organized at the churches. So that's kind of what happened. I think most of the information came from them observing us or hearing about you in a small town, you kind of hear about what people are doing. Somebody's going to talk and people are going to, you know, take information and then they're going to, you know, pursue to see exactly how far black folks are going. So when they talked about voting and voting registration, that made the, you know, the powers that be become very aware of what you, was happening in our community. You left the South in 1963 for Los Angeles. And yes. in relation to the timeline of the great migration of African-Americans moving north and then north, east and west in search of the warmth of other suns, as Isabel Wilkerson put it so beautifully in her book of the same title. What did you bring with you? What culture did you bring with you in terms of what you ate and in terms of how you maintain those values that you learned while chopping cotton? Well, even though uh, I came west, and the great migration, for the most part, was over in the sense, you know, by the time I came, because the West was kind of the last frontier for Black people, you know, to start coming in large numbers after, you know, St. Louis, Chicago, Detroit, and places like that. But I brought the, the work ethic. You know, work is work. You be on time. You uh, you do your work with a smile. You, you know, you're grateful that you have a place to work. So... I took, you know, I took pride in doing what I had to do. You know, I took it as a sense of responsibility. And then I also knew that in order for me to keep the job, I had to be able to do the job. I had to be consistent. I had to be on time. I had to know what my responsibility was. I had to know uh, what my, even within that realm, I still had to kind of know what my rights were. Didn't mean that I couldn't speak up for myself, but I had to try to keep myself in line with what it took for me to be able to perform my job. So hard work, responsibility, uh, self-determination, all those were kind of things that I brought with me. Food, we, and so when you came to these places, you usually came to a family member who was already out here. So we kept eating okra, butter beans, greens, hot water, cornbread, you know, tea cakes, <laughs> our homemade ice cream, peach cobbler, you know, molasses bread, bread pudding. So the people were already here and they were cooking those same foods. So that was those were what we were accustomed to. I had never I never had cauliflower when I lived in Mississippi. I never had broccoli in Mississippi. But I had plenty of greens, green beans, you know, black eyed peas, okra. You know, so I still was getting all the nutrients that we needed. We those were not necessarily crops that black people grew in not in, in you know, in the south where we live, but we had plenty of other green vegetables. We had uh, rhubarb, you know, rutabaga, rhubarb. We had sweet potatoes, uh, green turnip bottoms. You know, all those foods, we had plenty of nourishing foods. But I, as I say, I did not, and I certainly didn't have uh, 
you know, we didn't have mushrooms and we weren't on the on the sea, so we didn't have a lot of seafood. We had, you know, uh, buffalo fish, maybe catfish, right? You know, some trout and stuff like that. So our diet was a little bit different than those of the people in Louisiana who had a lot of seafood. We didn't have a lot of seafood. You know, we had just regular, you know, fish that they could get out the rivers. Well, I'm I'm getting hungry listening to this, but I don't blame me. <laughs> let, let me, you know, uh, from the East Coast, we grew up with okra, and we grew mm-hmm. up with uh, with collards and things like this. You're talking about, but this hot water cornbread. Can you explain that for all of us? Oh well, hot water cornbread was bread you made out of hot water. Usually, if if you had it, you had clabber milk or buttermilk, and you could put in your cornbread. But all the time you didn't have buttermilk. Usually, in the you know in the South, a lot of people didn't always have you know a but, buttermilk. So they would just take you know maybe meal, a little flour, a little salt, and just mix it up with. And you mix it up with hot water. You would heat water, and then you would make a mush. So you could almost like make a patty, and then you would fry it. And that was called it was called hot water cornbread. And sometimes people drop you know, balls of it in their greens. So, because that was, hot water cornbread was usually associated with eating greens and, you know, butter beans and black eyed peas. So that's what it was. You just took meal, maybe a little flour, salt, and maybe a pinch of sugar. So, and then boy, you know, heated some water and poured the hot water and then mix it to of a consistency of almost like a, a sour cream mixture. And then you make patties and fry it. And you can, See, now we've graduated. Now I put jalapenos. You can put uh, basil and thyme. You can make make herbal hot water cornbread. You can add flavors to it, bell peppers and so on. But at the time, they just you just had that hot water cornbread. And sometimes they made flour bread. And see, oftentimes it was cooked on top of the stove because you had to heat the stove to a certain degree in a certain manner to have the oven, to get the oven to a certain temperature to bake. So... In a way, it was easier to control food temperature on top of the stove. Because see, there was no, it was no, no, uh, uh, no way to control the heat. There was not a a regulator on the oven, so you had to move the ashes and the fire coals around in the stove to heat the oven when you got ready to cook in the oven. But it was easier to control the heat on top of the oven. Mm. I mean, on top of the stove. And and sometimes that same stove was used to warm up where you live. Oh, oh, which, oh, sure. You had a pot. If you, yeah, usually you'd have a, a a big pot. They call it a pot belly, pot belly stove. Big round pot, uh, belly. Really, was a stove that you would use to heat. If after, well, we had a fireplace when we were growing up in Mississippi. We had a fireplace, and then we eventually got a little small uh, gas heater. But many of the people before they had the pot belly stove, in the they would have the stove in the kitchen. But then they would heat the house, you know, with the fire, with the fire, with the fireplace. You'd open up the doors, you'd uh, chinch the windows. I don't know if you know what chinching is. The windows didn't always fit. So what you would do, you would take cotton or newspaper <laughs> or whatever you towels and stick in the holes. So when it got real cold, you could hear the wind shaking those windows. And we, you know, used, we, we used newspaper and sometimes yeah. we used old dish rags. That's right. Whatever you had. This, they call it chinching. I don't know where, where that word derived from, but anyway, they were sticking in the in those holes to keep those because when those windows started shaking, and see it snowed 
down south. It, it you really had we really had seasonal changes. So the weather the weather did you know we had spring we had summer, and then we, of course we had you know we had winter and fall. So yes, but we cooked on the stove. You put a big pot on the stove, and most of our food was cooked on top of the stove. We you know cooked. it's it's funny. I'm thinking about what you said, and I'm thinking that there's a bug, a chinch bug that just used to get real close and tight into places. And well, I maybe think that maybe a, uh, to chinch it means to get something stuck in between the Plain window window. and the frame so it would stay in place and it wouldn't Plain. rattle. Mm-hmm. So that, maybe that's the chinch comes from the chinch bug. It may, because usually one thing about most of the things that the older people had in the South, they had a rationale behind it. You may not have known about it, but there was some rationale, you know, around what they said or some experience that they had had and they would take that and relate that to some other event and that possibly they said that they were honey you certainly did because I tell you when that wind starts coming under that dough honey it'll make you grab whatever you had on the ref I mean that would be some cold air coming under the door and you, the, the wooden floor wasn't always covered with you know uh, tile or anything and sometimes the, the the wind was actually coming up through the, the rug, so through the floor. So about around Christmas time, we would always use to get a, a piece of new linoleum to put on the on the floor to kind of keep the you know to keep the wind from coming in. So when, was, when we began speaking in front of the YMCA in 2016, you said something that I thought was very profound, and I still believe it is. You talked about worthiness and worthiness in advance of what's happening now, the conversation in America in relation to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the, 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 the response to the murders that we saw of people like George Floyd, of Ahmaud Aubrey, of Breonna Taylor, the idea of worthiness, and you explained that worthiness is based on what standard, but also worthiness is a validation, a recognition of someone's experience and valuing that experience. So we as human beings are worthy intrinsically because of our humanity. And I, 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 I'd like for you to really elaborate on that, especially well, as you're talking to me about your experience and the value that that had that, it, that enabled you to become an educator. And, and the founder of the African-American Food Association, which we'll get to a little later. Yeah, I think, I think to me, once I, you know, it dawned on me, because, you know, we, we, we kept talking about equality, and we were talking about that, this 30, 40, 50 years later, we are talking about the same thing. You know, they say, well, dang, the clock, hands on the clock hasn't moved. So it's not always what other people think of you in most cases. It's basically what you think of yourself. And I think feeling worthy or worthwhile about yourself is based or is, is, the end is directly related to the things that you've known that, you, that you've done or that you can achieve. In other words, when I think about the fact that I was able to pick and chop cotton and I was able to wash and iron my own clothes and that I knew how to, uh, you know, to pick cotton and chop cotton and plant potatoes and dig sweet potatoes, all those were experiences that I had had that proved that I was worthwhile because if I hadn't been worthy, I wouldn't have been able to do those things. So worthiness is an intrinsic value 
But I also think it's a it's an accumulation of the experiences you've had to show and 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 validate your existence. In other words, what can you do? What what have you done? Because whatever you've done on your resume, it's it represents you. Just like when you go to a job, you you fill out your resume. I did this. I worked here for this. So my chopping cotton, my cleaning house, my ironing clothes. In fact, those are a lot of the things now that our young people can't do. A lot of young people don't know how to cook. They don't know how to iron. You you put they everything comes right out the dryer. Sometimes they don't even press it when it comes. They take it and ball it up and stick it in a bag and then go put it right on. So I think <laughs> that the, the, concept, the concept of worthiness is very important. What I think is directly related to the things that you can say that you've achieved. Doesn't have to be what anybody else see that's what equality confuses you because it means that uh you're supposed to be equal to who 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 sets the standard for you to be equal to I, I was looking at a program last night about Helen Keller and they were thinking that one of the reasons they didn't think that her work was as effective as it could have been is that the you know the media and and and, and the public wanted to make her out to be some outstanding person other than she was just Helen Keller, not just, she was Helen Keller. And so it was nothing necessarily that extraordinary about her other than the fact that she did certain things that were extraordinary. And I think all of us can do some things that are extra extraordinary that that meet some degree of, of standard. I mean, she couldn't speak, she couldn't hear, but she could do other things that elevated her to a high standard and that's why she was able to because she had a sense of worthiness of worthwhileness I can do certain things and she went about doing those things so I think that that's what we have to realize is when a, an opportunity presents itself how can I take this opportunity and do something with it how can I uh, achieve even if it's nothing but and I don't want to say I don't want to minimize anything I think it's important to be able to put your best foot forward and take pride and take say, you know, I know how to do that. Because eventually, almost everything that you learn how to do, you're going to be presented with that occasion again. If you may not be able to do it for you, you may be able to do it for somebody else, which is going to enhance their life. So the concept of, to me, for worthiness is an intrinsic thing that you have to feel for yourself, about yourself. And, and I think we tend to do that by observing other people and also by learning that we have the right to be ourselves. You know, someone else said, well, if you want to, why would you want to be somebody else? Because they're already taken. Why would I want to be? They're already taken. And if you, if I, who, who, who do you recommend that I be? Who, who's the person that is so much more, I guess, worthy or whatever you want to call it? So that's, that whole thing about equality, I think, has been very frustrating. And I think it's caused a lot of people even to commit suicide because they don't feel like I can't do what I can't do what my girlfriend does or I can't do or I don't have whatever this person has. But my point is taking what you do have and, and, and making that, you know, excellent. And I think that and that's something that only you can do. There's only one you there's no other person like you just like there's only one hope diamond you know i want to talk about this african-american food association 
And I want to have you share that in the context of the culture and what you want to sustain and elevate. And the tea cake <clears throat> is a cultural food. And it is something which you have worked very diligently to reintroduce, if you will. So let's yeah. talk about the tea cake. Yeah, well, the tea, well, in fact, the Food Association came out of my uh, desire to try and elevate what well, I won't say try, but to elevate and to acknowledge the worthiness here again, the word, worthiness of the tea cake. What makes the Oreo better than the tea cake? It's not necessarily better. It's people's perception of it. And I think that that's so important. Uh, my, I have a, an old saying, I may have said it before, that my mother says, a mighty poor dog doesn't wag his own tail. So when you look around and <laughs> Can you, you say think, that again? It's a mighty poor dog that doesn't wag his own tail. I like that. <laughs> yeah. And you, nobody teaches. who t- Whoever had a dog, you may have to take the dog to an obedience school, but whoever had to say, we're going to send this dog to learn how to wag his tail. There ain't no, ain't, no, ain't no dog wagging tail school. That dog knows how to wag his tail. It's intrinsic in that dog's nature to wag the tail. It was designed for that. And the same thing, we're, de- we're designed to use what we have to optimize what we, to make it possible for, for us to get what we need to get. But I, I think that whole concept around when I wanted to do the tea cake, my mother made it, my grandmother made it, but you never, I never saw it in the grocery store. I said, well, how come the tea cake is not, and it's certainly older than the Oreo. The Oreo came around about 1940-something. The tea cake, though, were 400 because it came out of slavery. The slaves made the tea cakes using their own, what, intrinsic ingenuity to develop something with what they had. They took it, and they, and they thought it was worthy enough. Why? They passed the recipe down word of mouth from one generation to another. You only enhance things that you really think are, are, you know, are worthwhile. So when I stopped teaching, and we, my sisters and I had a restaurant, and we were bringing back those old foods that we thought, you know, that were uh, down-home foods that people, what was it called, comfort foods. So we had the tea cake, we had homemade ice cream, peach cobbler. And uh, I, you know, had to develop, try to develop a, a recipe, because my mother, they didn't cook by recipes. They just, you know, they had, they knew how much flour to put in, how much sugar, and they kind of, and then when they would make up, especially cakes, they would bake a sample in the oven. They always called it a sample. And by sampling it, which is nothing but, when you look back, it's research and development, isn't it? <laughs> it doesn't have enough sugar in it. doesn't have enough baking powder in it. It's when experimentation. My, when my mother or one of my aunts did that, I was always there to lick the Every- bowl, to taste it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then I was always there to take a, a cut from the corner, whether it was cornbread or, like you're saying, a cake, to just see cobbler to see what it yeah. tasted like so i i was yeah, always so involved we, with research and development i didn't even know what it was yeah we well no they didn't give it the name because why because it was not thought to be worthy see there's the difference it's very important when you, it's how you treat something and also how other people treat it when they think it's worthwhile so that's and that's very important in the development of a people but i didn't i didn't i, I had never really taken any cooking classes other than my homemaking class the one class I had in high school and so I didn't really know about I didn't have a bakery I didn't know about how developing a recipe in a larger quantity than I was making so I say is there an association 
in the community or an organization, you know, where people can go to to learn how to make a, a tea cake or how to bake. Now I know they're all there's a CIA, there's the, all kinds of cooking schools that uh, teach French cooking and European cooking, and but I I had never seen any institute that was designed to teach and to preserve the African experiences of cooking, you know. So I said, well, uh, what about an association where people come together to unify and to gain information about cooking food, you know, that's derived from the African culture. So that was how I uh, went to the city hall and, you know, did all the things I could do to try to initiate the, the food association. But what happened was so many of the people were were so busy working, they didn't have time to stop and try to really help organize. There's an old saying that black people are so busy working, we can't make any money. Because uh-huh. it, huh? That's profound. Yeah, so we're, cause see what happens, it takes time. Uh, the companies that are making food, they have a test kitchen. They have somebody whose job is to create flavors of ice cream to flake to create new cookies there's a there's a whole kitchen it's called the test kitchen in fact there's a program on the food network there's a whole food network and there's a show called the test kitchen where they test different recipes and so on so my point was why isn't there a school that why again because no one necessarily thinks it's worthy and we've influenced the taste buzz of this whole nation everywhere from the, you know, you got the Creole, you have the Caribbean, you have the Soul America, you have the influence in South America. So all the places where we've been, and especially along the slave trade, you can see the residue of the African culinary uh, experience on those people and on that section uh, of, of the world. So my whole thing was, why not an African organization to try and train people how to make certain basic food for years, when you went to a repast, uh, we had home-cooked food. Miss Jones was going to bring her pound cake. Sister Corrine was going to bring her butter beans. And somebody else was... But now everything is coming from what? Smart and final. You know, <laughs> right you, we, at least we used to enjoy going to a repast because we knew we were going to get some home-cooked food. Now everything is smart and fine, the Costco. It's no, it ain't even fun going to eat there hardly anymore like it used to be. So the culture carries over into all areas of our life because everything that we do food is usually a part of the celebration weddings anniversaries birthdays uh family reunions holidays food is an integral part of that celebration so that's another way of giving worthiness to foods from your culture when the the jewish (laughs) where do you see the tea cake being sold or where do you see it being cooked how do how can we actually get well now yeah well now i I hear again i i stopped because i you know financially i just wasn't able to continue but there are few bakeries around now but when i first started making the tea cake i didn't know of any bakeries that was making them i think there's a, a bakery uh uh in uh la uh i think it's called heavenly love and i don't know if she makes them and then there's a, another bakery. I don't know if the, what's it called? Southern Girls. I don't know if they make tea cakes, but a lot of bakeries, black bakeries don't make the tea cake because it ha- people had never really thought about the tea cake or that here again, I go back, they didn't think it was worthy enough 
for it to be promoted like the Oreo. The Oreo, everybody knows about Oreos. I don't think you could ask anybody, Harley, that doesn't know what an Oreo is. You know, because why? Because people think that it's worthy. I think it's the most popular cookie in the United States. So when we think something is worthy, the first thing we do is we ask for it, we demand it, and then we also elevate it to a particular status so that whenever you have certain things occurring, you're going to have that product. So if, if, you know, certain Jewish celebration, you're going to have matzo ball soup, you're going to have salmon and lobster, you're going to have this cultural, uh, you know, kosher sandwiches or whatever the particular uh, festival is. That's usually the food is an integral part of that celebration because the people deem that that particular food is worthy of being a part. And it's it's come along with them from years and years and years. As far as you can go back, they've used had that particular food when they celebrated a particular event. So I see the tea cake as a as a as a way of paying homage to our ancestors, especially those slave women who had to almost sneak and make them. They almost had to sneak or if they made some in the big house, they had to sneak them back to the house to give to their children and their family. Ethan Robinson, you have been elevated in our community. Your part of mural is there in Hyde Park on the bank building of U.S. Bank at uh, Slauson and Crenshaw. Your image is right there, looking as elegant as you are next to Nipsey Hussle. Thank you. You have elevated the level of this podcast. You have elevated the culture which you are a product of. And I'm really delighted that we were able to speak today. I look forward to speaking with you again. And I just have to say thank you very much. And you're more than welcome. And I think one of the things that we need to really spend more time looking at is canning. That old, you know, the preserving the food. That's part of that journey that you talk about from the seed, you know, to, uh, uh, you know, to the, to the scraps. Because that was the other thing that our, my mother did in our answer. They, they canned foods. You know, the whole process of canning, yes. you know, which I think is so important. But yes, I'm very, I'm, I'm happy you asked me. And anytime you need somebody to talk about food and, and old people talking about some good sopping, because we also did some sopping with them biscuits, honey. <laughs> we did we had some sopping syrup or sopping gravy. And now the young women now mostly don't know how to make gravy. So right. a lot of things that, you know, our ancestors did have been lost along the way that we need to try to revive for that whole concept of worthiness and, and homage to pay to them. So in passing, I don't know. I used to watch my mother just take some flour, some seasoning, mm-hmm. and some uh, chicken necks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She would make her gravy for Thanksgiving out of out, out, out of that. I'm mm-hmm. not sure whatever else she put in because, well, like just, you yeah. said, it was made to taste. And mm-hmm, he mm-hmm. tossed something in there, and I was if I wasn't paying attention, it wasn't written down. I, I would never know. But those yeah. chicken necks and, mm-hmm. and, and gizzards, the gizzards yeah. and the, the nevers. Now they're getting gravy out of can. I had never had any white gravy. All the gravy I ever had was brown. Yeah. So now they got so all those are things. Because if you don't hold on to what you have, somebody else will take it. That's right. Because they see that they see the value in it, just like our music and everything else. So it's very important, and all of that I think works into why we commit suicide, why we have low self-esteem, 
is that we don't really see the content of our wordiness and see the context and the content of our wordiness and how that makes us very uh, valuable people and that we have valuable things to add to make the world better. And on that note, I say thank you. I don't think that there's anything left to be said. Well, I certainly appreciate your asking me. Enjoy the rest of the day and look forward to speaking with you soon. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.